I'll be reading from Matthew 23, beginning in verse 13. 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And I'm skipping over to verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'll pray. God, we are just grateful that you are truth as well as love. And that you do speak the truth to us in love. Thank you that you are clear, uncompromising. And thank you that you have provided the way of escape, the way to know you and to escape the coming judgment and wrath. We're grateful, God, that that way of escape is Jesus. And all you are looking for is for us to place our faith in him for salvation and eternal life. We thank you, God, for your ministry to us. I pray that you would speak to us, that our hearts would be responsive to you, for your praise and glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, um, good to be back with you. I thought I was back for a while, and I just forgot um, to mention before, because just I just forgot about it, that I was out last week. Um, I was asked to preach at a church in Florida, so it was a quick trip. We flew out Saturday, came back Sunday. And I appreciate Connor filling in for me. I'd asked him um, a while back to do that, but then he got sick. Um, but he got, the Lord sustained him and he was able to, to do it. And I appreciate that very much. Um, you know, it, it's wonderful having a new group of students with us. So thankful for each of them and their, their hearts and good attitudes and, and hunger and all. It's just exciting every year to have a new group of students. But I'm, I'm learning as I get older... Um, that um, my sense of humor needs to change. And that what I've always thought was funny, sometimes this younger generation doesn't see the humor. Um, for example, blonde jokes. 
Uh, I, I have a whole file of blonde jokes. People have sent me so many blonde jokes over the years. I just, I love getting blonde jokes. But I'm learning that sometimes with this generation, um, sometimes known as snowflakes, um, <laughs> they, they get easily offended. And even a blonde joke sometimes can offend them. I, I don't get it. I guess because I'm blonde, or I used to be. Now I'm gray. I'm just dumb. Um, but anyway, you come to a passage of Scripture like this with Jesus, and this is not the Jesus of our Sunday school classes as we were children. How many times do you ever recall a Sunday school teacher when you were in third grade dropping in at Matthew 23? Whoa! <laughs> Seven times here. Whoa, you hypocrites. Don't think so. We didn't do that. But, you know, it, it's, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is so harsh. Even though it was not the usual, as we read through the Gospels, that he would be this harsh. And now we're in the, in the very last week of Jesus' ministry on earth, and, and it's like now he's coming out with, all guns blaring. It is just, he's letting these Pharisees have it. It's unusual, but it shouldn't surprise us because he is God. He is holy and he is righteous and he gets angry. He is even described as being wrathful. So if we know the Jesus of the Bible, coming to chapter 23 and these woes should not surprise us. There's a current event, maybe you've heard about it, a school chaplain in the United Kingdom. This guy is taking legal action against his former employee because he says he was fired because of a sermon that he gave in 2019 where he told the students that they were entitled to make up their own minds about the claims of the LGBTQ identity politics. Now keep in mind, he's a chaplain. He's an Anglican minister, and he is ministering in an Anglican school. So this guy, an ordained minister in the Church of England, he'd worked five years at Trent College, um, and it says that he was reported to the government's counterterrorism watchdog by his school and blacklisted as a safeguarding risk to children by his um, diocese because of his sermon. In his sermon, he explained to his young students, all of whom were between 11 to 17, that the Church of England's historical teachings are on marriage, sexuality, and gender. He reminded them that they are not required to embrace the claims of the LGBTQ activists and are entitled under English law to believe what they wish on such issues. So the school leadership took exception to that. And they dragged him in for an interrogation, they suspended him, and they sacked him for gross misconduct, despite being a Church of England school. He said, I was a Church of England minister in a Church of England, acting in an act of worship, giving a sermon saying that you may accept church teaching. 
Days after his controversial sermon in 2019, he was reportedly called before the school's deputy head and, and its designating safeguarding lead and told that his beliefs were irrelevant and that his sermon had hurt some people's feelings. And he was fired. After a while, he was reinstated following an appeal, but he said his reinstatement came with a list of conditions, one of which forbade him to broach any topic or express any opinion in chapel or more generally around school that is likely to cause offense or distress to members of the school body. Wow. And it goes on from there. He says, they decided that simply holding to the church's teachings meant that I was, a, was potentially a safeguarding risk, that I might cause anxiety to anybody who came to talk to me about matters regarding sexuality and whatever. I am a risk because I might cause anxiety or hurt people's feelings. What would they say about Matthew 23 and Jesus' words? It's the world we're living in now. The people that Jesus is singling, singling out here for condemnation were the Pharisees and scribes. For reasons we don't know, he doesn't say anything about the Sadducees or the Herodians. But of those three groups, Sadducees, Herodians, and Pharisees, the Pharisees were clearly the most orthodox. They were the ones who had their theology all tucked in tight. They were um, the ones that were the least likely to be operating in violation of Scripture. But Jesus is accusing them of rank hypocrisy. We need to know from the outset of, this, of these woes here that Jesus is talking to unbelievers. That is not to say that we can't be guilty as people who have Christ, who have placed their faith in Christ for salvation, that we too can't be guilty of hypocrisy and a pharisaical attitude. We certainly can. But these words are especially geared toward people who act Christian, who may in fact even think they're Christian, but they are not. It's pretty sobering. My prayer as we go through this is that we would, believer or not, but as believers in Jesus, that we would not just dismiss this, well, this is good for those guys. I'm glad Jesus is giving them finally what they deserve. But that we would take this to heart, say, God, what do you want to say to me in this passage? Otherwise, we demonstrate the same attitude of the Pharisees. But I'm also aware that there is the possibility that you might be here this morning, maybe a Bible school student or somebody who's been coming to church your whole life, and yet you've never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've done all the right things, maybe even said the right prayer at some point. But in your heart, if you were to stop and ask God, Do I know you? Am I yours? that you might just hear silence. Whereas if you belong to the Lord, if there has been a time in your life where you have said, Jesus, I recognize I fall short of your glory, and I am in desperate need of your forgiveness 
and of the life that only you can give, which is yourself. Jesus, have mercy on me. Save me. I believe that the scripture not only witnesses to the fact that you at that point become a child of God, but at that point you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit himself bears witness to your heart that you are his. So I would just encourage you, if you've never done this before, and growing up in a Christian home can, is a blessing, but can also cause you to think, well, of course I'm saved. My parents told me I'm saved. What is the Word of God saying? What is the Spirit of God saying? And I would just prayerfully ask you to, as we especially as we look at this passage, just say, Jesus, am I yours? And I am fully convinced that God will confirm to you that you are, if you are. And if you're not, He'll let you know that as well. Verse 13, woe. Now, this is not the woe that you say to a horse, in case you were wondering. That's W-H-O-E. Woe. This is not um, cursed. Now, that in itself shows restraint. Because you remember when we first started with Matthew, we saw in the Beatitudes, we had those list of of the blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the, and the blessings, those were the blessings of his kingdom covenant. And it parallels the same blessings of Deuteronomy 28 with what we call the Palestinian covenant. But the Palestinian covenant is followed immediately by cursings. And so when we, when we were in Matthew 5 and we saw that fantastic list of blessings... What we didn't see followed were the curses. Well, now we're at that juncture because they have rejected the blessing that was offered to them. Now they're on the cusp of cursed, of being cursed. And yet Jesus, once again, we see this loving restraint where he's not saying, cursed are you. He's saying, woe to you. It's a step before Cursing, it seems to me. The word woe is a, war, a word of warning. It's a word of impending trouble, of coming distress. It is a red flashing light that says, slow down. You better stop. Don't keep going this way. And this is seven flashing lights here. Woe! And you would hope that they, by hearing this, they would change course, that they would alter the path that they are on. We know that they won't. So this first warning, this, this cry of impending judgment that is coming, says, you hypocrites, you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. That's the first one. You are not letting people enter in. You don't even enter in yourself. These men are not saved. Now I'm going to come back and, and, and address each of these, um, but I want to just quickly go through them so you can just get a feel, overview of, of this, the whole thing that Jesus is saying. The second woe in verse 14 really shouldn't be here because it's, it's not in 
um, the best Greek manuscripts. And that's why in your Bibles it's got brackets around it. But it is in Mark and it is in Luke. It's just somewhere along the transcription process, somebody that really knew the Gospels, Mark and Luke, when they were reading, when they were transcribing, writing down, copying these woes, they just dropped one in from the other Gospels to here. So good commentaries just ignore this verse because they would talk about it in Mark and Luke. But it's worth just noting quickly, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses even while for a pretense you make long prayers. So you, you devour while looking devout. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, because you, you'll travel sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. It's worth noting that the Bible never told the Jewish people to make Jews. They were, when they were, they were to be God's vessel, God's channel of redemption, where they would be the nation through which the good news would go out into all the world, not making Jews of all the world, but bringing people to faith in the God of Israel without becoming a Jew in the process. So God had no, no problem with people maintaining their national distinctiveness. What he wanted them to change was their faith, that they would become believers, that they would be converted, but not have to become Jews. Whereas the Jews were doing everything they could to make Jews out of people, but not seeing them saved. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold in the temple, that he, then he is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple, swears by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And he who swears by heaven, swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So they were using these oaths, as we already saw in, in back in the Sermon on the Mount, as a way to, to avoid the truth, a way to hide their lies, rather than to be upfront and straightforward with the truth. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these things, but these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So you major on the minors and minor on the majors. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that outside it may become clean as also. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness." Even so, you too outwardly appear as righteous men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? And at that point, they must have been remembering the words of John the Baptist. He said the same thing. So at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching and the Pharisees are coming out to him to be baptized. And he says, you brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. And now one of the last things the Pharisees hear is the same exact thing that John said. You brood of vipers. Serves as bookends on the interactions that John and Jesus had with the Pharisees. How do we, thinking of myself as a Pharisee, we, now I want us to use this and think of applying this to ourselves, even though I've said this is written to unbelievers, it is here for our profit as well. How can we, how do we keep people out of the kingdom of God? How could we be guilty of preventing people from being saved? I've got a fly that's become my friend up here, sorry. <laughs> By a false gospel is one way that cannot save. A gospel that cannot save. What could that be? Well, maybe just telling people, you know, if you just really do your best, then God at the end is going to evaluate the good against the bad. And as long as the good outweighs the bad, you'll be accepted. You'll be saved. That is a false gospel. By giving a false hope that tells people that, that people can be saved without hearing of Christ. That is not true. That is a false gospel. The scripture tells us that all must hear and that no one can be saved and that Christ, the name of Jesus, is the only name that has been given by which men must be saved. We keep people out of the kingdom by substituting works for grace and faith. By telling people that they are basically good and God is loving. Therefore, there is no need to fear a coming judgment. All will be saved because God loves all. We keep people away from salvation by denying the reality of an afterlife and of judgment and of eternal punishment. More and more evangelicals are saying that there is no eternal punishment. Now, they are not saying necessarily that there is a way to be saved outside of faith in Christ, but they're telling people, if you aren't saved, then you just cease to be. Well, there are a lot of people in this world that would rather just settle with ceasing to be than having to confront Jesus. These are all ways that we can hinder people from being saved. And too often, even those who are saved 
can be guilty of presenting a false gospel that does not save, a false hope that will only disappoint by trying to calm people's fears, we actually add to their hopelessness. How do we devour while pretending devotion? Can we be guilty of taking advantage of widows, devouring their homes while offering law and prayers? We do this by putting our interests ahead of others, by taking advantage of the weak and the powerless, by failing to be kind and generous with the resources that we have, and by holding people in bondage legally when it is in our power to free them. It's sad to think that even those who represent themselves as Christians would not hesitate to take advantage of a widow. It's still happening today. For you ladies who are among us that are widows, I can't encourage you strongly enough. Do not enter into contracts. Do not commit yourself financially. Do not make decisions about houses and property and investments without getting counsel first. Because there are those among us who represent themselves as Christians who are not afraid of taking everything you have. If you don't have adult children, you widows who can help you with these decisions, the elders and deacons of this church would be more than happy to come to your assistance. There is no need for you to put yourself in this position. But you should be aware and wary. Just because a person calls himself a Christian doesn't mean he has your best interest in mind. And he may be so convincing, so, appear so sincere, but you should get more counsel. You should consult other people. That is just the way of wisdom. How do we proselytize and make people worse off? By converting them to something else besides Christ and his atonement and faith in him. We do this by making men to be followers of men and man-made religion and man-made theological systems instead of followers of Jesus Christ. I'll never forget a good friend of mine who is high school quarterback, driven, type A personality. I mean, he is the mega type A personality. He came to faith when he, in, in Christ when he was in high school, and he was ready just to charge into hell, you know, with his water gun. He was just going, I'm, I'm, I'll take on everything. He was excited, zealous, passionate. He was a new believer, and he wanted everybody to know what he had come to know. And he went to the man that led him to Jesus and said, what do I do now? And the guy, knowing his personality, said to him, nothing. Nothing. Get to know Jesus. Open up your Bible. Read your Bible. And get to know Jesus of the Bible. What wise counsel. Today, I hear on occasion young men 
who come to faith in Christ, and they are immediately discipled to be followers of John Calvin instead of Jesus Christ. And the very men that are saying that, saying they're leading them to Jesus, but they don't, you don't hear Jesus. All you hear is Reformed theology, not Jesus. It's disturbing. Making proselytes of what we believe instead of followers of Jesus Christ. There is a huge difference. Even if everything about that Reformed theology is correct, you're making people followers of systems rather than followers of Jesus Christ. There's a difference between being a proselyte and being a disciple. The Pharisees make proselytes. How do we deceive and lie? Christians can be really good. We don't say, well, I had my fingers crossed behind my back. But we come up pretty close to it sometimes. We know we're not really speaking the truth. That we're trying to keep them from knowing what I really think, believe, or have done. And so we hedge and we waffle and we parse the words just exactly the way so that they, we, we mislead people. And not, we are not being forthcoming and clear, not true to what we believe, true to the Word of God. We do this when we use deceitfulness and cunning to obscure what we mean. You've bumped into it. You're dealing with a person who's a Christian. You don't doubt their faith. But sometimes you can't nail them down on what they believe. Why is that? One of the families is part of our church now. The first time they were here, I was asked, what do you believe about this? They were looking for a clear answer to a clear question. And I gave them a clear answer. I didn't know if that would be the last time we'd see them or not because I didn't know where they were coming from. didn't matter. They're asking for the truth. And the truth shouldn't be conditioned by how they might respond to it. They ask for what I believe. I didn't mean I have to go around with it, you know, and advertise everything. But when somebody asks you a straightforward question, you should be able to give a straightforward answer. They like the answer, and they're still here, and I'm very happy about that. <laughs> How do we miss the main points, the big points of justice and mercy and faithfulness? In what ways do we focus on the minor things? I can't think of this point without thinking of my mom, whose one of her favorite sayings was, you make a mountain out of a molehill. She was right. Don't we all do this in our marriages? What are the things that irritate you the most? Aren't they really just molehills and not mountains? I know a lot of times with marriage counseling, one of the things a good marriage counselor will try to do is just put things in perspective, right? What's irritating you? Do you realize how petty this is? 
We had a college professor who taught on marriage and family, and he used to call them the tremendous trifles. They're just trifles. And we miss the big things that we had to be thankful for. This person loves God. And I have to say they love me. And they love the kids. But I hate how they put the toilet paper on. <laughs> I hate that they don't pick up their socks. Tremendous trifles. The Pharisees were masters at nitpicking, focusing on the little things. And again, it's not that they weren't important. They just weren't that important. And so Jesus doesn't say, ignore the little things. He says, you need to do those things. It's good you're tithing the mint and, and the cumin and, and the dill. Well, how would they even do that? Well, if they were growing those things in their garden and, as, and as, they, as they picked and harvested those things, right from the beginning they would go, okay, if it were peaches, they go, well, I just picked 100 peaches. I'm going to set 10 peaches aside. I'm going to give, you know, and they were tithing literally everything. Well, good for them. They were scrupulous. They, I mean, they, they had scruples. They were, being, they were following through on that. But they missed the main thing. The big things that they should have been focusing on was not where they made sure they gave 10 peaches for every 100, but the justice, mercy, and faithfulness. All of it was God's word, but Jesus is telling us again, it's all God's word, but some commands are more important than others. Do it all. We do this. We major on the minors and, 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 and don't focus on the large things when we fail to see the good and grand things in other people while focusing on the minor faults. By failing to see that all the word is important and being faithful in the little things does, mean, does not mean that we can ignore the big things. You see, Jesus said, the one who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Unless you're a Pharisee. And then you use being faithful in the little as an excuse not to do the much. We're so good about excusing ourselves, justifying ourselves. We do this, focus on the, on the minors and not the majors, by justifying and excusing ourselves because we do the small things, but we neglect loving our neighbor. I have a friend that he's a pastor of a church, and he told a funny story that he was having a really bad Sunday morning, and on the way out to the to the car, he was yelling at the kids and saying, "Get in the car! Hurry up! Get in the car!" Slams the door behind him, and right across the street, his neighbor's sitting on the front steps, drinking his coffee, reading the newspaper, and he looks at the preacher on his way to church and says, "Give him hell, preacher!" I wonder what that neighbor thought. See, this is what my friend was saying. What does the neighbor think about me majoring on the minors going to church every Sunday? And yet I'm yelling at my kids like a pagan. Justice, mercy, faithfulness, without ignoring the others. Woe to you, he says, because in verse 25, Pharisees, Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but of the inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Really? Religious people can be greedy and full of self-indulgence? 
Oh, we're good at it. By how do we demonstrate this? Greed and self-indulgence. By not being content and grateful with what we have. What underlies discontentment? Greed. Greed. Covetousness. How, can we, how do we demonstrate self-indulgence? Sometimes just by the attitude that everything extra that God has given me is for me. <laughs> He's so good. God's given me so much. Obviously, God wants me to enjoy it all. It's for me. What an attitude of self-indulgence. Instead of having the attitude, I have more than I could possibly need, it must not be for me. Who do you want to give this to? God. This attitude of Phariseeism is in us all. Greed and self-indulgence. In what way are we outwardly beautifully beautiful but inwardly dead? And this is where it truly comes to being lost, though looking saved. We say the right things. We give every indication that of a relationship with him when, in fact, there is no spiritual reality. Again, occasionally we hear of people who are pastoring churches and have yet to come to know Jesus as their personal Savior. I've said before, I, have, I know a guy, a friend of mine, he went through seminary and was pastoring his first church. I think it was in Kansas City. And he was attending a ministerial alliance meeting in that city. Once a month, different ministers from various churches would get together and have lunch. Well, one of the ministers who did know Jesus could recognize that this one friend of mine did not know Christ whatsoever. Started a relationship with him, built a friendship with him, and led him to Christ had his Masters of Divinity and was pastoring his first church and did not know Jesus. Looked great on the outside, full of dead men's bones on the inside. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. How are we guilty of killing all the prophets? And this was the harshest of the woes. It says, all the, you will be guilty, this generation will be guilty of all the righteous blood from Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain, all the way to Zechariah. Could that be true of people today who call themselves Christians? We demonstrate that we are just as guilty as the Pharisees when we hate the truth that is preached. When we are more concerned with being offended than we are with being judged or disciplined by God. When we are willing to accept the happy messages of the scripture, but we reject the message of God's discipline and the message that makes us uncomfortable. We are demonstrating the attitude of the Pharisees. Oh, we would never kill those prophets. If we were alive when Jesus was alive, we wouldn't have shouted, crucify him. 
But how do we respond to the clear truth of God's Word? Are we more concerned with somebody said something that offended me than whether or not it was true? We can be all upset about how they said it and use that as an excuse to not listen to what was said. There are churches that preach nothing but the happy passages of Scripture. That is not the full truth, and it is not the Jesus of the Bible. You can't read historical narrative as this passage is and know how Jesus was saying what he was saying, because we aren't told. And this is where we're, we sometimes can read our personalities into this. And I am tempted to think that Jesus, as he said, each of these woes, he had his fist shaking in the air. Whoa! Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, whoa! And by the time he'd finished, he was hoarse. I don't think that's how he said these. Because of verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Now we're seeing his heart. I liken this to a doctor who has the utmost terrible news to give to you. And he doesn't just come in and stand by your bed and just say, well, you brought this on yourselves. If you hadn't been smoking for the last 40 years and drinking all those sodas, you wouldn't be obese and having the trouble you're having right now. No. But he's the guy that comes in, and he knows, and he's willing to speak the truth, but he does it with tears in his eyes. And so this is where we are. We all, none of us can escape the law of the harvest. We will reap what we've sown. The man that led my grandfather, my maternal grandfather to Christ was a doctor. And my grandfather was eaten up with cancer. And I'm so thankful that that man didn't just point his finger at my grandfather and say, well, you're getting what you deserve. But he said to him, he says, Tom, you're about to meet your maker, and you're not ready. And he led him to Christ. And now Jesus, after giving these seven woes, we see his heart. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. See, this is the same one who came to give himself for these people. Is he happy with them? No. 